Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And uh, while you're turning there, um, I didn't say this in the announcements, uh, but I need to draw attention to this. Um, uh, Martin and Sherilyn, um, sitting right back there. M- most of you uh, know them. If you not, uh, if you do not, please get to know them. Um, uh, they have presented themselves for uh, membership, and um, they have written their testimonies out for us to uh, go over and to consider. And so those testimonies are going to be in the foyer. I would just encourage you to uh, grab one of those as you leave here. And then um, at our business meeting, which will not be next week, I don't believe, but the week after, um, we will, uh, as a church, consider them for membership. So be praying about that, praying over that. Grab the uh, testimonies. And uh, as I said, if you haven't um, gotten to know them yet, uh, they are a wonderful couple, and I would encourage you to do so. Okay? Uh, John chapter 4, <laughs> John chapter 4, um, as we uh, are continuing going through this chapter, we're picking up this morning where we left off last week in verse 16, and so that is what I want to do. I just want to read uh, with you from John 4, beginning in 16, and then down to verse 26. Jesus said to her, that is the Samaritan woman at the well, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Would you pray with me? Father, there is no greater God than You. Because there is no other God who has ever worked salvation for His people. There is no other God known among men who has suffered and died on behalf of those who worship Him. You are a great King above all kings. God who freely gives to those who ask abundant grace. Lord, I pray that as we consider Jesus this morning revealing Himself to be none other than the promised Christ having come, as we consider His words to this lowly sinner, Samaritan woman, I pray, Lord, that we would see ourselves clearly here as we ourselves are great sinners and that we would see in Jesus mercy, grace, 
the Christ who comes to us not only as our King, but as our priest who makes atonement for our sin, bringing us to God. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, as you know, we started working through John chapter 4. A chapter that is largely, mostly about this interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. This woman could only be described as a great sinner. There is nothing, as we make our way through the chapter, that is really commendable about her. There is nothing that we read that we should come away believing she is upheld to us as a great moral example to be followed. That she is a righteous person to whom we look and we follow. The picture in John 4 of this woman is very clear. This woman was spiritually and morally corrupt. She was bankrupt at the core. She was a Samaritan. And as a Samaritan, she did not worship the true God. She worshipped a false god. So she was an idolater. She had embraced a religion and an idea of God that was absolutely contrary to the God who had revealed Himself to His people in the Old Covenant. As a Samaritan, as we saw last week, she was considered a half-breed by the Jews in her own culture. And as a half-breed, she was to be avoided at all costs. She was a fornicator and an adulterer. She was in a sexually immoral relationship with a man at the very time that she met Jesus. And she had already been through five different Husbands. Now, there's no indication here about whether or not her failed marriages were entirely her fault. But if someone has been through five marriages, there's probably some blame to be placed on them. Still, it's perhaps the case that some of her husbands, perhaps even all of her husbands, abandoned her for one reason or another. But regardless of the exact circumstances, going through that many men, going through that many different husbands, and being left, and seeing those marriages crumble one after the other, will leave any woman, any person, feeling shame. Feeling guilt, feeling abandonment, feeling as though in this world they have nothing to look forward to. This is probably part of the reason why as we find her in John 4 coming to the well to draw water, she comes to the well alone. It was common for women when they went to go draw water, to travel in groups. And yet, we find her, likely due to her reputation and her public shame, we find that she was traveling alone. So the picture of this woman is very clear. She was deeply sinful. She was deeply marred by her life and her experiences. And... Because of that, friends, she was just like you and me. Sinners from the very beginning. Sinners in desperate need of grace. But, because of her sin and her corruption, and despite it, we do not find Jesus avoiding her. 
we find Him rather engaging her. We find Jesus offering her something she probably believed she could never have. Grace. Coming to her, offering her living water. Jesus speaks to her of grace and salvation using the imagery of living water. Again, as we saw last week in the first 15 verses. And it's fitting imagery that He uses given their location in an arid, hot land next to a well. Both Jesus and the woman are physically thirsty. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach this woman about the grace of God that is offered to sinners and that will satisfy a far deeper thirst than the one she is experiencing now at the well. A spiritual thirst that the soul can only find satisfied in God Himself. But as Jesus speaks to the woman about this living water that He says will well up within a person to eternal life, as He says that in verse 14, as He begins to make the connections for her clearer, that what He is talking about when He's talking about living water is not real physical water. It's something even better. It's the grace and mercy and salvation of God and the work of the Spirit. As He begins to talk to her about eternal life and salvation, using this imagery, she still thinks He is speaking to her about literal water. She says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still looking for that. Her focus, still at this point, is on what earthly benefit she might be able to receive from Him. So what we find Jesus doing, beginning in verse 16, is making a subtle shift in their conversation. Not an entirely different change of subject, but just a shift in focus a little bit from what He can give her, namely living water to who He is. That is the change He makes. More than water, this woman needs a Savior. And so Jesus is going to reveal Himself to her as a complete and perfect Savior. And He's going to do so in three ways as we move through these verses. First, He reveals Himself to her as prophet. We'll see that in verses 16 to 19. He reveals Himself as prophet. Second, He reveals Himself as priest. We'll see that in verses 20 to 24. And then finally, He reveals Himself as king, as we will see in the remaining verses. So first, He reveals Himself to her as prophet. After the woman requests what she believes to be some unique kind of literal water that will keep her, prevent her from having to return to this well again, Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. This statement is of course intentionally provocative. Jesus knows that she is currently not married. And that she is currently, even now, in an immoral relationship with a man who's not her husband. His comment is not made out of ignorance. His comment is designed to change her attention from her physical thirst to her spiritual thirst. She has craved for acceptance. She has longed to be loved and valued, and she has sought to fulfill these desires in men. That's where she thinks fulfillment will come. And what she has no doubt discovered 
is that the cravings of her soul cannot be filled by men. She has had to learn that lesson over and over again. She has tried to fill the cravings of her soul with men and has only found a continual experience of emptiness. A bottomless pit of shame, despair, and guilt. But like an addict who repeatedly returns to a drug that destroys them, believing that the next time will somehow be different, she herself has repeatedly returned to men to fulfill her. And how do we know this is the case? How do we know that she is ashamed of the very thing she has been pursuing? It's because of her response that she gives in verse 17. She says, I have no husband. What she says is true. And in verse 18, Jesus even acknowledges that what she says is true. He says, you are right in saying, I have no husband. She is telling the truth. But it's only formally the truth. It's the truth on a technicality. Technically, it is true, I have no husband. Technically, Jesus, I'm not married. That's as far as the truth goes. The problem is that she's using that truth to cover up her sin. She's using a form of truth to present herself to this stranger in the best light possible. Knowing, feeling in herself that the very mention of a husband goes right to her heart and her experience of rejection and shame. It goes right to the heart the mention of a husband, to where she is wounded most. So what does Jesus do? Well, when He finds a wound, He exposes the wound. He removes the dirty bandage of formal truth, of technicalities, and begins His spiritual operation. He says in verse 18, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman, knowing this was her hidden secret, now being brought to light by a stranger, recognizes him as a prophet. A man as a prophet who speaks The very words of God. She has now moved, because of what Jesus is doing with her, she has now moved from thinking about literal water, from thinking about earthly, natural, physical things, to thinking about God, as she is in the presence of a prophet of God. And friends, that is exactly where Jesus wants you and me. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus does for us as our prophet. He speaks to us the very words of God. He is the very word of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, the words of Christ, friends, words of Christ are no mere casual small talk. He's not interested in just talking about the weather unless it's leading to something of internal, eternal importance. Every word He speaks has a purpose. And for the people of God, every word is designed 
to have maximum impact on your soul, on your heart. When you are in sin, Jesus, as the great prophet who speaks the divine Word, will not be loving you if He simply allows the poison to spread. He will go to the heart. He will go where the sin is and perform an operation. He finds it and He exposes it. When you are overwhelmed, when you are absolutely overwhelmed by grief, as a prophet, He comforts you with great promises. When you lose a husband, when you lose a wife whom you've spent many years with, in fellowship with, communion with, pursuing God together. When you lose that loved one, when you lose a child, God is there. The prophet of God is there to give you sweet promises. I am the resurrection in the life, Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. When you have lost and you are overwhelmed with grief, Jesus speaks as a prophet to your wounds. When the reality and the ugliness of your own sin is felt so deeply that you almost despair. That you get to the point of forgetting the Gospel. As prophet, He reminds you of the justifying love of God. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is to condemn you, O sinner, if you have experienced the justifying love of God? Yes, your sin is there. Yes, you feel it. Yes, it assaults you, but if you are in Christ, it's crucified on the cross. Never to have any power over you again. When you are in despair, that is how Jesus in His office of prophet ministers to you. His prophetic office, as it did for the Samaritan woman, reveals... Your infinite depravity. And at the same time, it reveals the infinitely greater grace of God that overcomes all sin. Which leads us to the second way we find Jesus revealing Himself as a complete and perfect Savior. He reveals Himself as priest. Not only as prophet, but as priest. A priest, especially in the Bible, acts as a mediator between God and His people. He intercedes on their behalf. He offers sacrifices that serve as substitutes. To bear sin within a sacrifice in place of the people who should bear it. That's part of the ministry of a priest. He intercedes. He offers sacrifices. But the priest doesn't do these religious acts, these different rituals, for the sake of religion itself. 
Intercession is given by the priest and sacrifices are offered by the priest so that people might have access to a holy God. And that as they have access to a holy God, and as because of this intercession and because of this sacrifice, they have no fear of the judgment of a holy God against their sin because it's been dealt with. As they have access to God, they are now able freely and with infinite joy to worship. To worship. Worship, friends, is the end goal of the priest. It is what he is tasked with teaching people, and it is what all of his work leads to. Helping the people of God find their fullest joy in the worship and praise of God. This shouldn't be, this shouldn't be a concept that makes us think God is some egotistical maniac by any means. Many of you are married, have a husband, have a wife. Do you praise your husband or your wife? Do you enjoy telling others of how great your husband or your wife is? Some of you have children. Do you enjoy lifting up your Children, isn't this the culmination of your joy in the relationship to praise this person to others? That is what worship is. We find in God some being to be infinitely beautiful. The God who reveals Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ, is full of glory, and so we worship Him. And that is what a priest aims to do. To help people worship God. And in verses 20-24, to we find Jesus teaching what true worship is. When the Samaritan woman recognizes that Jesus is a prophet, she immediately raises a point of contested theology. You see, the Samaritans and Jews had profound disagreements about what true worship was. And specifically, where He was to be worshipped. The Samaritans, in their religion, only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. First five books. They rejected the prophets, they rejected the wisdom literature, they rejected all of this as unbiblical. First five books was their canon. It was their Bible. They even had, if you will, the first five books written as the Samaritan Pentateuch that was even modified to fit their particular beliefs. So they rejected the entirety of the Old Testament. And so as they rejected that, they also rejected the portions of Scripture which clearly stated that God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem. They argued that God was to be worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And at one time, they had even built a temple in that location to worship God there. The passage that Chris read from earlier in Deuteronomy 12 speaks about this place appointed by God where God's people are to worship. It's really only later as more history unfolds and as more revelation is given, that it becomes clear that Jerusalem is that appointed place. Well, if you don't have the rest of Scripture, you have to find where that place is. And they located it at Mount Gerizim. So you have this conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans about where we are to worship God. And this point of contested belief is what the woman raises when she says to Jesus... Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you, that is the Jews, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so it leads Jesus to teach four important truths about worship. Number one, true worship is not limited to sacred locations. True worship is not limited to sacred 
locations. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. With the entrance of Christ into the world came a very significant change. The shadows of Old Old Testament worship were now being replaced with the substance that is found in New Testament worship. Whereas in the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was the focal point of the worship of God, now with Jesus, the temple has become Himself. This is something we've already seen Jesus teaching the Jewish people about. We saw in John chapter 2, verse 19, where Jesus says to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John tells us that when Jesus spoke those words, He was speaking about the temple of His body. The temple of Jerusalem was a shadow. The Old Testament was a shadow. It was temporary. The purpose it served was to point and to prepare the people for the coming of their Messiah. All of the institutions, the temple, the sacrifices, all of them find their climax and fulfillment in Christ. And so whereas the Old Covenant is only but a shadow, now the fullness, Jesus says, has come in Him. So true worshipers do not worship any longer in a holy place. They worship a holy God in the person of Christ. Number two, true worship is according to God's revelation. True worship is according to God's revelation. Jesus says in verse 22, you, that is the Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus here is very clearly saying that the Samaritans worship a false god. Now friends, we should take note of that. We should take note of that. Jesus is not concerned with affirming every belief that every person has, religious or otherwise, as equally valid. There is right worship. There is false worship. There is the God and the Creator of the world, and there are idols. There is the God who has made you, and who has made man, and there are gods made by the hands of men. And Jesus is saying very clearly to this woman, that what the Samaritans believe, what they worship, is a false god. Take note of that. But is Jesus also saying, as He continues, that all Jews are saved because they worship what they know? Clearly, that's not the case either. Because Jesus says to the Jews, some of them at least, in John 8.44, you are of your father the devil. And you do according to His will. Perhaps not the best evangelism strategy that people would like to teach. But true enough, indeed. He very clearly says that even the Jews are not all saved. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, the contrast that Jesus is making is between worship that is according to God's revelation and worship that is not. He says that Jews worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. 
Meaning that the salvation that is coming to the world, the salvation that is going to be enjoyed by all nations, comes through the Jewish line specifically. Traced from Eve's offspring, through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David, and ultimately the son of David. It is through that line. In other words, this is a reference Jesus is making to the revelation of God given throughout the entirety of the Old Testament law and prophets. To believe and understand that salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is something that God has been working out through this particular people for generation after generation requires that you have a knowledge and an understanding of the entirety of His revelation. The Old Testament Scriptures. And this was a revelation that the Samaritans largely rejected. And so because they rejected it, Jesus is saying their worship on the face of it was false. True worship, all true worship is according to the revelation of God. All true worship takes into account every word that God has spoken to men. Number three, true worship is mediated by Christ. True worship is mediated by Christ. In verses 21 and 23, Jesus speaks about the hour that is coming and is even now here. Well, what is this hour? What is this hour that is coming? This hour is the time when Jesus is glorified as He gives His life as a ransom for His people. That is the hour. It's the time when Jesus accomplishes the work for which He came to die on a cross as a substitution so that all who believe in Him might have eternal life. I'd have the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. So, for example, Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And when He says those words, He is saying the hour has come for Me to go to the cross and to accomplish My work of obedience even to the point of death on a cross and then be raised from the dead. He is speaking of His work climaxing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And His death, burial, and resurrection, as we find later on, is the priestly sacrifice that He offers on our behalf to God so that we might be made righteous before Him and be able to worship Him in truth. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Friends, the only worship, the only true worship of God is the worship that comes through the priestly mediation of Jesus because it is through Him that we have redemption and through Him that we have access to God. When Christians say that other religions do not save, we're not just being mean. The reason we say that, the reason we teach that salvation is exclusively found in Jesus, is because apart from the blood of Christ, you have no atonement before a holy God. And the concern and the great thing that causes us grief is that if you enter into the presence of this holy God with your own righteousness to present before Him, you will only experience His wrath against your sin. That is why the sacrifice of Christ is necessary for all who would know God so that they can have access to Him, and so that their sin 
might not be the thing that brings judgment against them. For Jesus Himself has borne it in His own body. Number four, true worship, Jesus says, is in spirit and truth. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. That is to say, your worship, to be true worship, must be internal. It's more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. True worship is when the heart, renewed by the Spirit of God, bursts forth in praise to the God whose love has been poured out into it. It is a response to the work of God within a person. Worship is not simply a matter of performing certain rituals. Rituals may be involved, and indeed are, but true worship, Jesus says, is worship that is inward. And not according to your own imagination, but according to the truth as it is revealed in Him. It is the fruit of the work of the Spirit and the fruit of the truth that is revealed in Christ and in His Word. So Jesus here in these verses is clearly acting as a priest as He teaches this woman on the nature of true worship. Lastly, Jesus reveals Himself not only as a prophet and priest, He reveals Himself as King. Verse 25 says this, The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. And John clarifies, He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Messiah means anointed one. And it's a name that is given to the king who sits on the throne of David. Every king who sits on the throne of David. David himself was a Messiah and was called a Messiah, but if you will, a little M Messiah. Not a big capital letter M Messiah. David himself was hoping in the day and for the coming of the day when Big M Messiah would also come. Knowing that God had promised him that one of his own offspring would sit on his throne and have an eternal kingdom. David didn't know who this person would be. He didn't know when this would in fact happen. There's some indication that he might have even believed Solomon was perhaps the Messiah. And in some sense, Solomon was a partial Messiah. Bringing worship to God, bringing peace to the nation of Israel, but even as we see at the end of Solomon's life, he failed himself and was not the Messiah. Many of the Psalms that David wrote were about this royal Messiah, like Psalm 2, where it says in the first two verses, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Against His Messiah. The Samaritan woman had some awareness about this coming Messiah. And she expresses her trust that when He comes, truth, the fullness of truth will be revealed. And it's at this point when she expresses this trust in the Messiah, that Jesus gives a stunning revelation. I who speak to you am He. I am. It's very literally what it is. You may be familiar in the Old Testament where God reveals Himself and gives His name. I am who I am. Jesus here says, I am 
Namely, the One who speaks to you. The veil was completely lifted. And the King had come. And He was right in front of her. The Samaritan woman. Can you imagine the surprise? Can you imagine the shock that she would have experienced? Can you imagine the wonder? Can you imagine the way her heart would have sung the praises of God when the One whom she knew would bring into the world all truth was now before her? The effect this revelation had on this woman caused her to run back to her town and to tell everyone, could it be that the Christ has come? The King is here. The King is here. And she tells so many people that eventually, as we find, the entire town begins to come out and see who this Jesus is was. That was the design of Jesus' revelation for her. And it is the design of His revelation for you. He is our King. And He has clearly shown Himself to be our King. If you are part of the people of God and have put your faith in Christ He is your King. If you do not believe in Christ and have rejected Jesus as the Christ, He is still the King. He rules over all. And this King, brothers and sisters, is unlike any other King the world has ever known. This King, brothers and sisters, is a heavenly King coming straight from eternity itself into this world, taking upon Himself human flesh. And why is this significant? Because this King, friends, has not come into the world to be a tyrant over us. This King has come into the world to be a servant and to die for the very people He entered to save. This king is unlike any other king as well because he is a priest who offers his own blood on our behalf. Our greatest need, access to God, reconciliation to God, souls that have been healed, souls that can lift up into praise of God because this is the very purpose for which we have been made. This can all come about because the work of this King is also the work of a great priest who offers His blood on our behalf. And this King, brothers and sisters, is unlike any other King because there's no other King who knows your heart. There's no other King who knows your needs. There's no other King who knows when you need to be comforted. No other King who knows when you need to be rebuked. No other King who knows when you need to be corrected. This, friends, is a King who can minister to your soul. And this King as well is the King who has done such a work to bring about a reality and a world where we can have a hope where we also will be kings with Him. The great promise of the Gospel, friends, is not only that we have the forgiveness of sins. That is great as it is, but the beginning. The beginning of greater things to come. This King makes you male and female, also co-heirs of a great kingdom to come. And so in the midst of a world where nations rise and falls, where empires rise and fall, when we see nothing but darkness, death, and destruction, our great hope is that all kingdoms will one day bow to the great King Christ and all of His people will in peace and harmony reign together over the world as they were made to do. 
In the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, when God makes male and female in His image, what does He say? Have dominion. Have dominion over the birds of the air, over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. It is yours to enjoy, to reign over. Friends, as we lost that very thing in the garden, Christ has come to restore that very purpose. Our great hope, brothers and sisters, is that because of the work of Christ on the cross, because of His priestly mediation, because He is our great prophet and King, we can not only be reconciled to God, but we can have a hope of a day when we and our sinful bodies will be raised to new life with glorified bodies, each of us being given a new crown and a new name, a crown with which we will take off and lay at the feet of Jesus, and we will reign together with Him forever. What a Savior. What king on earth can promise that? And as we saw this morning, if you were in our Sunday school, these promises come from a God who is incapable in Himself of ever lying. And what He has said, because He is the God of truth, will come into being. What a Savior. What a hope. Our hearts should sing as this woman, as she came face to face with her Christ, also sang. Well, let me pray with you, and then we will close with praise. Singing the praise of the name of Christ. What a Savior He is indeed. Father, we thank You that in Your infinite wisdom, And despite all of our iniquity, despite the need, the the necessity as it were, for us to be judged because of our sin, You worked out a plan to send Your Son into the world to be our substitute. To be a man of sorrows in our place. Oh God, we praise You this morning because the grace that satisfies our souls and longings even now by Your Spirit is only a foretaste of what is to come. We enjoy now the first fruits. And Lord, we look for the fullness to come. And so Father, I pray that as we leave here this day, we would leave here as the Samaritan woman, going forth and telling the world, telling the towns and the cities, can this be the Christ? The King has arrived. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.